Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. hear from God's Word now. As I mentioned before, we're going through the book of Romans. This morning we're looking at chapter 10 and we're picking it up from verse 8. It should be on the screen behind me if you want to follow that along. Romans 10 reading from verse 8. But what does it say? The Word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one, who, the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear about someone without preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Good morning, everyone. It's good that we can be here again this morning. My name is Ben, if we've never met before. Um, just to quickly, Ross mentioned before about the Alpha course um, and super exciting. So we've got the Alpha course that runs in English on Thursday night, but through our English for Life uh, uh, activity, event, things that happen at church, uh, we've got about 10 people working through Genesis to Jesus um, on Wednesdays, and then we're kicking off Alpha in Mandarin and Korean on Wednesday. So super exciting that we've got some stuff there happening as people get to know Jesus. Um, we're going to pray and then we'll get into this passage. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have this morning to gather, um, to be here. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God um, who is with us. Father, we pray that this morning, whatever's been happening for us, that right now that we'd be able to hear your word and hear you speak to us. Father, for those of us who need challenging this morning, we pray that you would challenge us. For those who need comforting, that you'd comfort us. And Lord, we pray that you would meet with us and that we'd be transformed because of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last year, uh, after COVID, Elizabeth and I went to Noosa on a holiday. Uh, it was in the middle of winter. And one of the things that I like doing on holidays is fishing. So someone told me that there was a good fishing spot out the front of the Coast Guard there. And I was really struck by something uh, when I went there four days in a row. It wasn't the fish that I caught, um, because pretty much the rule of thumb is if anyone recommends you a fishing spot, there's no fish going to be there. That's just the rule. So if anyone tells you that, go somewhere else, anyone but there, uh, anywhere but there. But, but I pursued with it, I stayed with it, and four days in a row, I was struck by something. It was the Coast Guard, right? And I don't know if you've ever kind of seen this or looked into a Coast Guard or whatever, but every morning at 5 a.m., five people would come out of the Coast Guard, and they'd have this intensity to what they were doing. 
They would set up their boats with this drive, this purpose, and they were excited about it. It was kind of this laughter among the group. They weren't skipping, but they may as well have been skipping as they were going out to the Coast Guard to set it up. Now, as I was watching all of this every day, I was a little bit confused. I mean, first and foremost, I was regretting being out there. It was so cold. It was often raining. It was dark. It was miserable. I was kind of regretting that I'd even gotten out of bed that morning. But I was deeply confused. (laughs) Confused by why anyone would be happy at that ungodly hour of the day. Confused why anyone would have that sort of drive and purpose for something like a Coast Guard. Confused by everything that they were doing. And that confusion continued. It grew. It grew when I found out that the Coast Guard actually operates 24-7. It grew when I found out that everyone who works there isn't paid, they're all volunteers. And so I thought about this, and it just messed with me a little bit. So I thought, okay, I need to find out why anyone would do anything like that. So I found this guy. He was a boatie. He liked traveling on his boat, did it a fair bit, and he was, he was thinking about joining the Coast Guard. And I asked him, why would anyone do that? And he said, well, they've been such a helpful you know, thing to me over the last you know, 20 years or whatever of him being on this boat. But he said, the real reason that I want to get involved is this idea that I can participate in emergency situations where I could actually save someone's life. That kind of idea gets me going. Now, when he said that, it didn't persuade me to join the Coast Guard, but it did make sense all of a sudden. It made sense why anyone would want to be involved in something. It made sense why they would have this drive, this purpose, this excitement to what they were doing. Because this idea that you could be involved in saving someone's life, I get that. Now, this morning, as we gathered together at church, my aim is not to get you to join the Noosa Coast Guard. But when we get into Romans 10, what we find is that actually God invites us into this same kind of thing. God, in Romans 10, invites us to be involved in saving people's lives. He he invites us to save people from death to life. You see, Romans 10 is all about our responsibility in the unfolding story of salvation. Now, I know this is confusing because where we find ourselves in the book of Romans, this is a little bit tricky, right? Because last week in Romans 9, we reflected on how it's God's responsibility to save, right? God does it all. God has mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy on. And when we kind of think about it, we reflected on last week, it's this mystery that we trust in the one who knows it all. But Romans 10 then, as we move into Romans 10, it speaks about our responsibility. So how's this going to work? How is God responsible and we are responsible? How does this unfold where we can actually be involved in saving people? What does it look like for us? What does our responsibility look like as we dig into this? Well, in Romans 10, we got four things for us. Four things where it lies on us, our responsibility in the unfolding story of saving people. The first, if you've got your Bibles there, it'll be on the screen as well, is in verse 1. He says this, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. The first responsibility we see when it comes to saving people is a responsibility up. It's prayer. Now, this is a bit confusing. Again, think about what we've just come off the back of in Romans 9. Right? God saves whoever he wants. Don't answer back to God. Confusing that Paul then doesn't do nothing. Right? It almost feels like the logical step on the back of Romans 9 is to sit back and do nothing. God's going to do it all. But what does Paul do? He models to us. 
something. He models to us our responsibility, and it's to pray. It's to pray. In the confusion of it all, in the mess of it all, in the heartbreak of Romans 9, the move for us, first and foremost, the responsibility for us is to pray. Now, why is it to pray? Well, it's because of what prayer is and what prayer does. And there's two big things about prayer. Firstly, that it's powerful, and secondly, that it's comforting. Firstly, it's powerful. Paul knows this. Prayer does stuff. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. When we're praying, we're coming before a living God who is in control over everything. And what we see throughout the Bible and throughout history is that prayer changes things. You know, in the Bible, you see this particularly when it comes to saving people. In the book of Acts, there's moments where thousands of people turn to Jesus. But if you take a step back and you look how that started, it began with prayer. You know, chapter 1, they're gathering and they're praying in Acts, and chapter 2, the church explodes. Prayer is powerful. It does stuff. But we see that in history as well. There's these things called revivals, where towns and cities and nations turn to Jesus kind of all at once. But you trace that back, and where did it start? It started in prayer. Prayer does stuff. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is us turning to God and asking that God might do something And what we see over and over again in the Bible and in history is that God does. But you see, prayer is more than just powerful. Prayer is also comforting. Because when we pray, we're not, it's not like a genie, right? Prayer is not us, you get three wishes and God does what you ask. But only three things. Nor is prayer like us coming to a vending machine. You know, sometimes people think about that. If you just type in the certain code, then you can get out what you want. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is us coming before our Father, coming before the God who knows everything and is in control of everything, but also who loves us. And so what that means is in the middle of all of the confusion, the responsibility, all of this, that we can come before God in prayer and lay it at His feet. We can cry it out. We can shout it. We can sit there in silence. We can be praying about all these things we've been thinking about, about people who are saved and people who aren't saved. And when we do this, we can find a deep comfort before the God of the universe, knowing that He loves us and that He's for us. Prayer is both powerful and it's comforting. And the responsibility to pray is on us. That's our responsibility. You know, Paul models that here. He shows it, but this is our responsibility as well. So, It's worth asking this question. When it comes to saving people, when it comes to being involved in this, are you praying? Are you praying for the people that you want to see come to know Jesus? And is this something that's not just like a token, you know, when the preacher says we've got to pray, but is this something you're driven to? See, I think in the Bible, if we want to see people come to know Jesus, if we want to see that, then we've got to be a people who are praying for that. The first responsibility here is that we pray. It's a responsibility up. But there's four things. So what's the second? Well, as we keep reading, it's a responsibility in we believe. Notice how, the, how we see this from verse 2. He says, For I can testify about them, that's Israel, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness For everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, 
or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It kind of repeats this again in those next verses. And in verse 13, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's the second responsibility in this? It's a responsibility in that we believe. Right? He says it there. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Now, there's a question again here, right on the back of last week. How are we saved? Who does it? Right? Does God save, like we saw last week in Romans 9? Or is it us, our belief in Jesus, that He is God, our trust that He did raise, He was raised from the dead? Which one is it? How are we saved? Well, the Bible says it's both. Both things are true. God saves and we must believe. Now, a, a famous theologian, a guy called Charles Spurgeon, who was a great preacher, he explained it like this. It's almost like the doorway into heaven, if you can picture that. On the one side, on the, the side that we're looking at, that we enter into, it says only those who believe in Jesus will come in. But then when we go in, on the other side, it says only those whom the Lord calls will come in. That's what we get in Romans 9 and 10. God is responsible and we are responsible. And what Paul wants to make clear here is that we get what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about how to be right before God, that we get that right. Because Israel got it wrong. Right now, he, he, he reflected on that in those opening verses here. They had zeal, but it wasn't based on knowledge. You know those people that are passionate about the wrong thing? We all know them. Well, that was, that was Israel. That was Israel. That was me. But that was Israel. They were passionate about the wrong thing. They thought that if they did the right stuff, if they worked hard enough, then before God, they'd be good enough. You know, we, we've seen this in Romans 1 to 9 over and over again, this idea, if they work hard enough, then they'll be good enough. But Paul says, that's not the point of the law. The law doesn't make you right before God. The point of the law is Christ says there it's he's the culmination of the law now what does that mean that he's the point or the culmination of the law well well we again we saw this in the first nine chapters of romans and if you you weren't here just quickly the law in romans shows us that we're not good enough you know we see this in in chapter 3 i think it's verse 15 and 4 verse 20 the law reveals that we're sinful the law reveals wrath that's what the law does the law shows us that we can't be good enough for God. And so how can we be good enough? Well, that's Jesus. That's how this points to Christ. The law points us to Jesus because the law can never make us good enough for God. We need something else. Now, how is Jesus that solution? How does Jesus make us right before God? Well, this is where he goes. In these verses on the screen here, this is where he goes because he says, Jesus makes us right before God through his death, and his resurrection. Now, there's some stuff there in verse 5 where he talks about this idea. It's language from the Old Testament, and it might feel a little bit confusing, confusing on first reading. Is this too annoying for you, or is it all right? It's all right. It's just annoying for me. Okay, I'll push through. I'll pretend like it's not. So, there's some verses there that uh, does feel a little bit confusing. 
Because he points back to the Old Testament. If we're not super familiar with that, it sounds a bit weird and out of place. But he's going to Deuteronomy. And in this section, what he's talking about here is how people in the Old Testament were saved. And it wasn't through their works, through working up to God, nor their works to go down to the depths, but rather it was through, even in the Old Testament, belief. And here he spells out how it's true through belief. So to kind of spell it out in a way that's maybe a little bit clearer, to give us a picture, it's like this. It's like a mountain. So you might have heard it described like this before, that God is at the top of the mountain and we are all at the bottom of the mountain, right? And, and the aim in life is to get to God, to get to eternal life. Now, if we understand this image, every religion is a pathway up to God. Right, so every religion is a pathway up to God. So, you know, you've got Islam, Buddhism, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, all of that stuff is a pathway up to God. And what they all have in common is that we need to work our way up the mountain. You know, we've got to work hard. We've got to, you know, be at a certain destination. We've got to fast a certain month of the year. We've got to pray a certain amount of times per day. We've got to door knock on a certain amount of doors. We've got to do a certain amount of things, be good enough, and then we'll get to God. The Israelites, in that same picture, are a pathway to God. They thought that if they did the law well enough, then they would get up to God. Right? That's the picture here. So you can kind of picture that. Every pathway leads up to God. In fact, some religions even say it doesn't matter what pathway you take, all pathways lead up to God. Now, when we see what Paul's saying here, what he actually says is, it doesn't matter which pathway you take up to God, If you work hard enough, eventually you'll still find yourself in a point where you can't go any further. You know, if you've ever climbed a mountain and you get to that point that you just can't keep going, that's what religion is. Religion leads us. We work hard, but we get to a point where we just find ourselves lacking. But radically, the message of the Bible is we don't have to work ourselves up to God, but rather that the God who's at the top of the mountain came down. It's the difference between religion and every other, uh, between Christianity and every other religion. Religion says you've got to work your way up to God, but Christianity says God came down. The God of the universe entered into our world. He died on the cross. Then he was raised back to life. And when we believe in the God who made himself known, who came down, that's how we're saved. Or to use Paul's language here, don't go up, don't work your way up to try and bring him down, just believe in the one who already came down. Don't go down, don't work your way down to the depths, but rather believe in the one who already went there, who died and was raised back back to life. Now, the reason we see this here is because Paul's showing us where the responsibility lies, right? Did you see it there? He says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Right, you notice the emphasis there. You know, sometimes we can get caught up on the back of Romans 9 and go, well, I can only say I believe, you know, but it's attached to this line. Like, I believe, but because God called me first and chose me and all of that sort of stuff. That's not how it reads in Romans 10. Paul just says, brother, sister, just believe in Jesus. Believe in your heart. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. Let it be a truth that soaks deeply in your veins, that, it's, that it bleeds out into everywhere part of your life that Jesus, the one who came into the world, is God, and that he died and was raised back to life. And when we believe this, this is how we'll be saved. The responsibility is on us to get this right. To not drift into thinking that it's our works that make us right before God, but to remember that we are only saved by Jesus. So again, it's worth asking this question. 
do you believe in Jesus? Do you think that at the end of the day you'll be right in heaven because of your works? Or do you think that you'll be right simply because of what Jesus has done? There is a responsibility here to get this right. To just trust in the one who came down the mountain, who died and rose again. We've got to believe. We've got to get that belief right. So first, responsibility is up in prayer. Second, responsibility is in, in belief. The third responsibility, as we keep reading, is out. We speak. And we see this from verse 14. He says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The third responsibility on us is that we have a responsibility out to speak. Now, the logic here is pretty simple. If people get to hear about Jesus, they can trust in Jesus. But if they don't get to hear about Jesus, they won't trust in Jesus. You know, I kind of think about it um, like the Coast Guard. You know, again, you think about them setting up their boats, getting everything ready each morning, excitedly ready to go and save some people. But if they find out that someone's dying and they don't go, it doesn't matter how good they looked, If they don't go, it's pointless. In the same way, this is what we see here. If we don't go, if we don't speak about Jesus, there is no hope. There is no hope for people. Because people will only see Jesus if they get to hear about Jesus. Now, there's some words here to help us understand what this means for us. So firstly, the word is preach. Now, this word simply means herald. And in the ancient world, a herald was someone who would walk around the streets yelling out the good news or the news. That's what a herald was. You know, they didn't have newspapers or the internet. So that's a herald would just yell out the news. Which means this, when we think about it in the context of the Bible, it's not just the people on stage, the pastors who are preachers. Anyone who speaks about the message of Jesus is a preacher. We can all be preachers if we're speaking about the good news. Then there's this word sent, right? Because he says, how will they hear unless someone is sent? But again, the image here is not just missionaries who are sent overseas. It's not just pastors who are sent into churches. But again, this is all of us. We see Jesus sent his disciples into the world. And so what this means is all of us can be sent. It's not just overseas. It might be into a workplace. It might be sent into a neighborhood. It might be sent into a family. It might be sent into a school or a university. All of us are preachers and all of us are sent. And all of us are called to do this. This is the responsibility on all of us. Now, how do we do this? How can we speak about Jesus? Because it's hard. Well, I think that Paul gives us a hint here, and it's in the word where he uses hear, or this idea of being heard. right? Because when we think about it, it actually does help us see practically how we can speak about Jesus. So um, think about this idea. For you to hear something, it must be more than just words proclaimed. Right, so on Tuesday, uh, I was talking to one of my neighbors, and um, he, was, he, he was born in China, and he came out to Australia when he was 19. As we were chatting, uh, another neighbor drove past and wound down his window and yelled something out in Mandarin. Now, as I heard him yell that out, did I hear him? I heard him. Did I understand it? I didn't understand it, because I don't speak fluent Mandarin. 
So I asked, you know, my neighbor about it, and we talked about it. But there's something in this, right? You can't just proclaim words. That's not how hearing works. You've got to explain it. You've got to help people understand it. So when we're thinking about preaching, it must be more than just proclamation. It's got to be persuasion as well. See, we have to proclaim it. We have to say something. Or we've got to help people. We've got to persuade people, help them understand it. Now, persuasion does not mean compromise. It doesn't mean going soft on our beliefs. But it does mean we help people understand what we're saying. Right? So we've got to think about the words that we're saying. We've got to make sure we're not using Christian jargon. Right? Like if we're just proclaiming to someone, repent and believe in the gospel, you may as well be speaking in another language. Because what is the gospel? What does it mean to repent? We've got to think about the language we use. We've got to make sure we can be clear with people. We've got to think about people's backgrounds. To help people here, we've got to think about where they come from, what their religious background is, what their sociological background is, where they're from. We've got to think about where they're from. We've got to think about how we can communicate not just words and ideas, but love. Right? So often the message of Jesus comes across as just this message of this idea, like, I need you to see this idea. But it has to come from a place of love, which means we've got to connect with people and understand people. We've got to be empathetic to what they're saying. To communicate the fact that what we're saying comes from care and love. Preaching is proclamation. We have to speak about it, but we also have to think about how we can speak about it in a way where people hear. And what Paul says is, the idea of preaching and being sent is an idea for all of us. In this way, we're all missionaries. Into wherever we go, that's where we're sent. So, again, it's worth asking this question. Are you speaking about Jesus? Are you intentional in who you're speaking to and who you spend your time with to speak about Jesus? Do you understand that you might be people's only connection with Jesus? You might be the only person in their life who knows about Jesus. You see that responsibility. God calls us in those moments to speak. And if we speak, that's how people can hear. But if we don't speak, they will never hear. There's a real challenge here. You know, I, f- I feel this. This kind of stops me in my tracks because I think about this idea, man, like what if, what if at the end of my life I got to heaven and someone just said to me, man, why didn't you speak about Jesus? There's some, there's some responsibility here that Paul's speaking about here. There's a weightiness to this. And we're called to speak. We're responsible for that. So there's a responsibility up, we pray. A responsibility in, we believe. A responsibility out that we speak. But the final responsibility that we have, as we get to the end of this passage, is a responsibility back. And it's a responsibility back to remember the words of our God. To remember what He's done and the type of God that He is. And as we get this last one, it's this responsibility, I think, that really fuels us in mission fuels us in our lives, and we understand who God is and what He's done. You see, in verse 16, He says, But not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, He reminds us again, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But then He says, But I asked, did they not hear? Now, you kind of feel the tone here, the weight here. He's like, man, we, we spoke, they spoke, they heard, but they don't believe. And it breaks him. 
You know, in, in Romans 9, he had unceasing anguish and great sorrow. He is broken by this idea that Israel don't believe. They heard, but they don't believe. And so we feel that too. You know, hearing so many people had their growth groups this week where we, we reflect on how we felt about Romans 9 and there's heartbreak there, there's sorrow there. Because we know people don't believe. And we feel the weight of this. So what does Paul do when he feels the weight of this? What does he do? Does he do nothing again? Does he stop in his tracks? No, he goes back and he remembers. And notice how he remembers God's words. He's speaking about what God said in the Old Testament and he said, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Verse 19, again I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation who has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who do not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held my hands out to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, I know that there is some stuff in this passage about Israel. Next week, we're going to spend more time thinking about where Israel fit in the story and how we understand this in Romans. But as I read this, I can't help but seeing these words in verse 20 and 21, where he says, where God says, I was found by those who did not seek me. And then in verse 21, all day long, I held my hands out to a rebellious people a disobedient and obstinate people. And do you see what's happening in this? Paul is reminding himself of the type of God that God is. He's a God who saves people who aren't even looking for him. That's amazing. Like we sitting here this morning are products of that reality. Many of us, our story of salvation is that of where we were saved. We weren't looking for God, but he came and he found us. God is the God who saves people who aren't looking for him. But then 21, he's also a God who holds his arms out to disobedient and obstinate people. You see, in the middle of Romans 9 and 10, it might leave us confused. It might leave us heartbroken. It might leave us feeling sorrow. And then when we think about our responsibility, the responsibility to pray and to believe and to speak, there might be guilt. There might be shame there. It might be this burden upon us. But it's here as we reflect on who God is and what God has done. It's this that fuels us. Because God is not this angry God that wants nothing to do with anyone. He is a God who saves people who aren't looking and who holds his arms out to disobedient and obstinate and rebellious people. This is who God is. And it's this as we remember back. that This truth here is what fuels us and moves us to do anything, to be involved in what God is doing in this world. So you see, the responsibility up to pray, in to believe, out to speak, back to remember. And when we do this, we can be confident that God will work in us and through us as we participate with saving people. And when we move in this way, people will come from death to life. Because this is what God does and who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, that as we reflect on this final point, God, you are a God who saves people. And you are a God who holds his arms out to lost children. 
And God, this brings us hope and comfort in the middle of confusion and sorrow. And so we pray, Lord, that this truth would fuel us and fire us up as we think about the the weightiness of what's going on in this passage and our responsibility to move into our world. We pray that you'd give us the grace in this, Lord. We know you're a gracious God. And we pray that you would help us as we go out. Help us to speak in the middle of moments where we don't know what to say. Help us to move and to pursue and to ask. Help us to pray. Help us to believe. Help us in all of this, Lord. Again, knowing who you are and what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name.